0: Oh, here's a big spot for the Yankee rookie, Clint Frazier. The 1-0. Driven to left field and deep. Going back, Perez, turning, looking,
1: see ya. Ball game. A big home run for Frazier. A huge win for the Yankees. I tell you what, you just feel like if you're the Yankees fan. (laughs)
2: And with that, we are back. And no, I did not plan on being gone for months. Jeez. Uh, Where to start? Where to start? So, we finished the last podcast, Don and I, uh, season 7, episode 11. Uh, I believe it was sometime in late May. And we had every intention on coming back the next week and recording episode twelve. honestly, I don't know what happened. Uh, we didn't do it that first week. I canned in an interview with Tom Verducci that you'll hear a little bit later. uh, so I kind of was going business as usual uh and then. Don and Michelle, Michelle has a lot of concerts in the spring, uh, so he wasn't available a couple weeks, and next thing you know, I was just like, you know what, let's just take a summer break. I had been going really hard uh, between doing the two podcasts this year. You know, I love Don and I love Dater, but they don't do anywhere near the work that I do to get these podcasts up on the internet so i was burnt and i needed a break uh so i took one i appreciate everyone who reached out and said hey what's going on with the podcast Uh, where are you um that really makes me feel good Uh, i know millions of people aren't listening to this show but it's nice to know that people are and uh people from all Different walks of life have reached out in the last six or seven weeks and said, hey, what's going on? Uh, And we're really looking forward to having you back. So with that said, we're back, and it's just me. And I think one thing that I decided uh, more than anything over the break is that I'm not going to be afraid to do shows by myself anymore. Uh, They're shorter shows when I do them myself. I'm not going to do... A uh, three things in a minute, but you know what? What would we really talk about in three things today in the middle of July? You know, I don't know that it's that important right now. Uh, and I have two pretty good interviews. Uh, another reason, I guess, I should mention why I was gone is my laptop broke. Uh, I, I'm a huge Apple guy. We've talked about it. I have an iPhone. My wife has an iPhone, Uh, we have an iPad, we have an iMac, we have Apple TV, and we've had a MacBook Pro. And of all the Apple products I've ever had, the MacBook Pro is by far the worst. The worst. Uh, The hard drive had to be changed two different times on it. The first year it was covered by the warranty, the second year it wasn't, so it cost me a couple hundred bucks. And then sometime uh, late in May, it just stopped booting. Um, And it's pretty much bricked. So I had to get a new laptop in there. And I'm working out some of the kinks with the new laptop. You think kind of in your mind like, hey, I'm going to update my laptop. I updated some wires, have all this new equipment for when the podcast comes back. And technically, it's going to be the best podcast I've ever done. Well, you're going to find out it's, it's, it's quite the opposite. Uh, the Verducci interview actually was recorded right after my laptop broke. So I had to use my iPad to record it. That turned out fine, but I didn't know how to record any audio. Uh, so the fight song on that interview just kind of plays beforehand. Uh, and then we go in right into the interview with Ferducci. Last night, I did an interview. Uh, Paula's here. Paula, you want to say hello? Say hello, Paula. You going to talk? You got to say something. You can't just hit it. If you want to be on a podcast, you got to talk. Alright, looks like uh, there'll be no talking. Uh, Last night, I recorded an interview with Brian Curtis. Now, one thing I've been hearing from a lot of people is, dude, get rid of Skype. You gotta go to FaceTime. Do a FaceTime audio, and it's killer. The quality is awesome. You're gonna love it. Whatever. So I called Brian on FaceTime audio. We're chatting a little bit. And in the meantime, I'm bringing up the Texas Fight song uh, on on the browser. And for whatever reason, while I'm connected to a phone call on FaceTime, I'm getting no audio quality at all from the web browser. So finally I have to abandon that and I tell Brian I'm just going to give him a countdown. And honestly, I'll probably never do an interview on the FaceTime audio again. It, like, there's this, like, weird, almost, like, clicking noise where the audio switches from 10 to 8. Like, there's times where the quality is 10, and then it will click over to 8, and you can hear, like, the process of it clicking over to 8. And it's a little bit annoying and a little bit distracting. So I'll never do that again. I guess Skype is is still the way to go. I'm going to stick with Skype uh, from now on. So, this podcast is a little bit of an adventure. I mean, I'm recording it open. Paul is on my lap banging the mic. Uh, And there's dead spots because she decided not to talk. And I've just spent three minutes explaining all of the technical difficulties involved, and it's not what you would expect, I guess, from a podcast uh, that is on its 7th season, and its 12th episode. Uh, But that is uh, the culture of the show. With that said, I mean, there's a lot of really exciting stuff going on. If you like the work I do, uh, it's a good time. I know it's been a long break, but I'm coming back with a vengeance. So let me tell you all the different projects I'm working on. First of all, I plan on doing the sportscasters weekly to bi-weekly uh, during the summer. Uh, I'd like to do it every week. I'll probably do it every week. There could be a week or two uh, during the summer uh, where I don't do the sportscasters. And that will only because I'm busy with some of the other projects that I'm working on. I'll tell you about some of the other projects. Obviously, the Motivation Through Music podcast actually produced this thing. Uh, a friend of mine growing up, his name is Matt Cebalski, you can find him on Twitter at Matthew Cebalski. Uh is a motivational speaker, he's a life coach, uh, a really ambitious guy, he just wrote a book called Find Your Playlist, which is all about how music uh, changed his life, how he found his playlist, and uh, through finding that playlist, he climbed out of the hole of drug abuse. And made changes in his life for the better. And his idea for the podcast was that he would go through in greater detail the chapters of the book. And then eventually transition to other songs. uh, Talking about how music, uh, how you can be motivated through music. And uh, we've recorded two of these. The first song, or the first episode is about the song Under the Bridge by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And the second episode, which actually comes out Monday, is about Rhyme and Reason by Dave Matthews Band. Uh, and I am second Mike and producer. Uh, I try to help Matt, try to get the information out of him. Uh, sometimes comes off a little bit like an interview, like I'm interviewing Matt. Uh, but really I'm just trying to help him uh, get the information out there. And I think as he builds experience, uh, I'll become more and more of a producer and less and less of a on-air talent. But that's something we're working on right in the studio here. Uh, it has its own SoundCloud page. You can find it on SoundCloud, Motivation Through Music. And it also has its own, its own iTunes and Stitcher. Uh, so Motivation Through Music, if you're interested in that, uh, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes whoever podcasts are found. Also, this is kind of a passion project, something I've dreamed of doing for a long time, and finally I said, you know what, I'm doing it. Uh, my friend Eric Haber and I, he's been a friend since high school, are going to be doing retro wrestling podcasts. And we're going to start with SummerSlam because it's SummerSlam season. And hopefully sometime between now and the next SummerSlam, we will do podcasts reviewing SummerSlam '88 through '92. That's my goal. I watched SummerSlam '88 yesterday. I got about nine pages of notes. Uh, I went through Bret Hart's book, uh, a few other wrestling books uh, for some tidbits about WrestleMania, or excuse me, SummerSlam '88. This genre, I guess, is hot right now. Obviously, something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard is the top dog in this kind of retro wrestling genre. Uh, our vantage point is another one I can think of. Uh, Conrad Thompson does the WCW one with Tony Schiavone. There's also the Place to Be Nation that does retro wrestling podcasts. I... Uh, is there is there a need for another one? I don't know, but I've always wanted to do this. Uh, and we're going to start with SummerSlam. We'll do the five of them, 88, 89, 90, 91, and 92. And I even would like to squeak in 97 if we have the time. So it's one of my favorite SummerSlams. Uh, and we'll see how it goes. I have an idea for a format. Uh, We're definitely going to go through the matches. We're going to give star reviews, zero to five, dud to five. Uh, We're going to talk about the backstories, talk about the wrestlers, and hopefully have a lot of fun. If you know Eric, you know he's a character, Uh, so he should bring bring some interesting flavor. Uh, And these will just be listed as Sportscasters bonus shows. Uh, They'll be on the Sportscasters feed on SoundCloud and iTunes, and, of course, Stitcher. So if you already subscribe... To iTunes or to the sportscaster somewhere, uh, you will be able to you will be able to find it. Uh, real quickly said it's it's been a while. Oh, other projects. I'm going to be doing a documentary, uh, a radio documentary. Uh, thirty for thirty. Uh, just started to release some, uh, but the inspiration is the history of Howard Stern which is the greatest radio documentary of all time. I have a topic in mind. I have a list of interviews, and I'm going to begin working on it literally as we speak, and I hope to release it on April thirteenth, two 2018. So that's a hint, maybe, about what the topic would be. Uh, So that's another thing I'll be working on in terms of podcasts. So we have motivation through music the sportscaster specials with SummerSlam 88 to 92. I'll be in the background working on a documentary and of course uh, the mothership the main show the sportscasters it's back today season episode, season 7 episode 12 Tom Verducci and Brian Curtis are the guests today. again I apologize for any kind of technical glitches although there isn't really any with the Verducci interview there's just that that little that little bit in the uh in the Curtis interview and I apologize for that but I promise next week now that I have all my new equipment kind of figured out uh, I'll avoid any mistakes like that again Jeff Passan will be on the show hopefully next week I talk to Jeff uh, about getting uh, getting into a mid-season baseball report. And um, actually, I've been working really hard on a bunch of bookings uh, while I was off. Uh, so we should be able to hit the ground running pretty hard here uh, and uh, have a bunch of shows in a row with, with great guests. Uh, real quickly, since it's been a while, before we get to Tom Verducci, I should m- remind everyone, you can find the podcast on SoundCloud, it's soundcloud.com slash sports casters. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at sports underscore casters there. Uh, you can also find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Downcast, uh, wherever podcasts are found. And if there's somewhere where you'd like to listen to the podcast but can't, uh, email me, the sportscasters at gmail.com. And I will, of course, take care of that and make sure it's available uh, to be able to listen to uh, where you want to hear it. Uh, With all that said, I think we can take a break. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a break, come back with Tom Verducci. Uh, Then we'll be back for a book club update. It is book club book of the year time. Uh, So we'll go over some of the candidates uh, for the book club book of the year. Start talking about that. Uh, Because it is that time in July when we pick the book club book of the year. Then we'll take another break. We'll do uh, an interview with Brian Curtis. uh, And then I will close things out with one last thing. Uh, Thanks again to everyone who stuck with us. I'm super excited to be back. Uh, I'm really looking forward uh, to all the different projects that I have lined up. And if even half of them work out, like I hope It's going to be a really exciting time uh, to be a listener of the Sportscasters. So, we're going to take a break, and we'll be right back with Tom Verducci. All right, our next guest is a two time National Sports Writer of the Year, a senior writer at Sports Illustrated, and the author of The Cubs Way Design of Building the Best Team in Baseball and Breaking the Cursed. He's nice enough to make his sixth appearance on the show today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Tom Verducci. How are you doing today, Mr. Verducci? I'm
3: doing great. Thanks for having me. I got to tell you it's also a pleasure that I won for a third time this year national sports right of the year
2: at the uh at the most recent uh, ceremony then huh
3: Yeah so I'll be uh in North Carolina next month to pick up that award which is very cool that's voted on by my peers so it's especially um a thrill to to win that award a third straight time
2: What do you do with your awards <laughs>
3: That's a very good question. Uh, I do have an office, but uh, most of them are packed away. But I got to tell you that in North Carolina, with the uh, Sports Writers Award, one of the things they give you is a bat, a baseball bat from Louisville Slugger. And uh, that is so cool. I have those displayed because. I don't know why they give bats because even if you were, say, a basketball writer or hockey writer, you would get a bat. Uh, but it worked <laughs> out perfectly for me. <laughs> that
2: that that is really cool. Did you ever? You're never tempted to take the bat to the to the batting cage, just you know, see what kind of power you might have in that bat. Uh
3: no, I already know I have no power, and <laughs> I know it's, uh, it's it's the bat is a, an award bat, so I'm not. It's probably not the best wood. <laughs> <laughs>
2: You know one thing that we love to talk about and maybe it's me just being strange but I'd like to get the authors at the end of the kind of the end of the process, the end of the period of promoting the book and things because I'm interested in, in how you viewed the last few weeks or months and I wonder about the process of the cubs way and how it compares Uh, to the cycle you went through as a co-author with Joe Torre and the Yankee years?
3: Well, the biggest difference is what you just touched on there is that I didn't have a co-author this time. Uh, So I think when I wrote the Yankee years, clearly capturing the voice of Joe Torre was, was one of my paramount goals in writing the book. Um, You know, I wanted to write about not just how the Yankees won, um, but how baseball changed around the Yankees and in terms of their dominance or lack of in the last few years with Joe's manager. And I really wanted to attack it from the viewpoint of Joe who had obviously a, a front row seat to all that history. In this case, uh, I was one with the front row seat actually quite literally because I was down the field for Fox covering the postseason with the Cubs. Um, so it, in some ways it was a little more empowering. I didn't have to worry about capturing anybody else's voice except my own. Um, but the one similarity is that both cases uh, had very little time to write the book. In fact, there was less time to write this one. Um, right. So it's nothing that uh, that I would recommend for a writer. You know, every writer wants more space and more time, uh, but sometimes you don't have those luxuries. Uh, do
2: you get a sense? Did you get a sense? I suppose is probably the proper way to say it of how the business has changed from when you were promoting Yankee years to now Cubs way?
3: Um, a little bit. I think there's much more emphasis on eBooks and um, even audio book books, actually, where those tended to be a little bit more of an afterthought. They were still part of the equation during the Yankee years, um, but uh, it seemed like there was a little more emphasis. I'm not sure exactly how the sales themselves break down, but um, that certainly has grown in that time. Um, and I, I, just think with all things in sports as well, it seems like the landscape is so much busier that it's harder to have an extended period where and not just even a book, let's say even a story in baseball or in any sport, um, remains front and center for a very long time. Our attention spans are getting shorter, I think, because we have, so many diversions and distractions that the shelf life for a lot of big stories or big books, big movies, whatever you want to call it, tend to be shorter. The cycle turns a lot quicker. Um, And that's certainly something I've noticed even before writing this book.
2: What about the specialization in media in the sense that we have a Major League Baseball network? There's countless podcasts specifically about baseball. I'm sure you probably even did a podcast or a radio show that was just about the Cubs. Um, are you finding uh, it a little bit easier to directly reach the people who you think are most interested in Cubsway or um, not much of a change there?
3: No, I think it is. I, I think to me the one of the big changes that I've noticed in the course of my years covering baseball is that specialization is almost demanded by the audience. And that's true, whether it's a book or you're writing for newspapers or a blog um, or you're on television. You know, when I first started out, the, the big person that you wanted to be or the one certainly at the sports section was the general columnist, you know, someone who could drop into a hockey game as easily as he could a baseball game and crank out a column to tell you what to think or what's going on. Um, but people really don't put a lot of stock or at least as much stock in that position anymore. They want authenticity. They want people who are inside. They want people who are experts in the field. I think that's the same in just about anything, if you will, Uh, whether it's a restaurant, whether it's medicine, you know, general practitioners just don't have the same value that they used to have. So I think when you come at a book like the Cubs way, uh, I think having someone who's, uh, authentic uh, in terms of their expertise in that sport uh, is really important. You just can't have someone drop in and say, oh, I'm going to write a book about the Cubs, even though I haven't been covering baseball full-time. Um, and actually, I think one of the uh, curious feedbacks I've gotten, and it's actually a compliment, is some people have told me who been diehard Cubs fans that they're surprised that like, I'm not from Chicago or didn't grow up a Cubs fan. I'm sort of outside the tribe, if you will, (laughs) so, uh, you know, like, how could you write this book? We really enjoyed it, but, you know, you're not from Chicago, are you? That's the next level of specialization. People expect one of their own to be that deeply involved in the subject, and uh, obviously it doesn't have to be the case in terms of, you know, you followed that team, but, again, I think it points to the fact that people are very tribal, especially in baseball. You know, I know there's been a lot of talk about baseball not being as popular as it once was, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think the popularity has changed from a game that really was a true national game to the strongest regional sport that we have. And people like to put up borders around their team and say, this is our team, these are our guys, without really much concern for, um, say, if your team gets knocked out in the postseason, for for rooting for somebody else in the postseason like a lot of people do at the NFL.
2: You know, it's so funny you say that because one thing I said to my brother about the book was, I said, I bet you, if you covered up the author's name and handed it to someone, they'd think Michael Woban wrote it. Um, you know, yeah, so well, that, I think the, the key for
3: me, uh, the, yeah, the key for me, and the key for I think anybody writing this type of book, where the story, let's face it, is well known. People followed the Cubs who weren't even uh, necessarily baseball fans last year in October. So the key is, how do you tell a story that's already been told a lot in a new and different way? And to me, it really starts with reporting, and to me, reporting starts with access. And, you know, the relationships that I've had over the years with Theo Epstein and Joe Madden and Jed Hoyer and even Tom Ricketts, those are the things that you rely on more than, you know, the zip code of where you live. And uh, hopefully that came through when people read the book. In fact, i got to tell you, one of the best compliments I got from uh, anybody after the book came out was actually from Theo Epstein who told me after reading the book, Hey, I really liked your book. And I really learned a lot reading it.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> that, yeah. Wow. Theo's learning stuff. That's pretty cool. I actually, speaking of Theo, I, I told my brother who graduated from Yale a few years ago, I said, you know, I really wish you would have been born a couple of years, uh, later now because Theo is doing the, uh, doing the, um, they their speaker's at class day, not at graduation. Yeah, is a three-day graduation, which is a bit obnoxious, but the first day is class day, and that's where they have their speaker. and uh, It's Theo this year. I got Biden, though, when my brother graduated, so I can't complain too much. Biden was great.
3: Um, Yeah, three days. That's a lot of speeches for three days to sit through. <laughs>
2: isn't that unbelievable, a three-day graduation? You know, it's funny, too. I'm 11 years older than him, and when I graduated college, he... I kind of accidentally caught him complaining about how boring my graduation was. And it was, you know, I went to SUNY Fredonia State College in New York. And, I mean, it was an hour and a half long. So that weekend, I teased him, you know, all weekend <laughs> uh, because it was three days long. Um, and he was complaining. He was a boy, though. so But anyway, but two words I had written down in my notes were access and reporting. Um, and I was curious, really curious about Access in the sense that you have relationships with people in the book. You're also covering the series for Fox. Can you tell us a little bit about how the Access broke down when you were writing the book? How much do you attribute uh, the Access and the awesome reporting uh, to being able to be there as one of the guys covering the series and how much do you attribute it to uh as you said the more traditional ways that us one gains access through relationships and things like that
3: well i think uh covering the series um for fox it does give you access above and beyond as a rights holder and this is true by the way with any national rights holder uh espn as well Um, with their radio team in the World Series and during the season, you do get exclusive interviews with managers before games. Um, You know, these can run anywhere from five to 20 minutes. Um, I know this happens in the NFL, too, where the announcers go in early. So those are definitely useful periods where you're able to ask, and sometimes even sensitive questions, but any question at all that you probably wouldn't want to ask in a, a mass group interview setting, uh, which tend to be much more generic. So those are very helpful in getting information. Um, But really, to me, it's more about the questions that you don't ask. And by that, I mean it's the conversations you have with people um, when your notebook is closed or the tape recorder is off. To me, those are just as important because that's how you're establishing relationships. You know, it's interesting. I obviously spent a lot of time over the years with Joe Madden. He's a big part of this book, and not just about managing games, but managing people especially. And I've learned a lot from him about his style. And, you know, if I can dumb it down to one thing, I would say uh, his big guiding principle is to get to know the player before trying to manage the player. He's very big on connecting with people on a personal level. And I didn't realize that, but in some ways, that's essentially what I as a journalist try to do as well, so that every time I go talk to someone, it's not an issue like, you know, I'm trying to get something from the player, that it's just a, a one-way relationship. It's all, well, tell me this, tell me that. Sometimes it's just having a conversation with people, um, and whether you're curious about something that you're not writing about or just saying hello to somebody that can help you connect with somebody. And the more you connect with people, then I think the better the answers are, the better your access is. Um, so there's a lot of what Joe told me about his philosophy that's in the book that I think works as well, not just in journalism, but I think in, in really any discipline. So um, access is great, but uh, it really, access to me goes right along with trust to make sure that you take advantage of the access that you have Uh, Your subjects have to trust you, and that's probably, well, it is the first rule in journalism that, you know, you have to be responsible, and to be responsible, you have to get people to trust you.
2: One more thing about this kind of stuff, and then I'll get into into specifics of the book I wanted to ask you about, but I am fascinated by the journalism aspect of it. Um, Excerpts. I wanted to ask you about excerpts. Um, Did you play a part in deciding, did you have parts of the book in mind that you wanted to shop to various outlets about excerpts? Uh, Tell me about the ones that ran. I'm positive there was an SI one, and I think there was another, maybe a Deadspin. Definitely a web one. Tell me a little bit about about the process of picking those out and, and what role, if any, you had in them.
3: Yeah, that's interesting because I've seen some ex- excerpts um, that have appeared in SI where an author will just turn over the book. And SI, rightfully so, can go in there and basically turn the excerpt into a synopsis of the book where they can pick and choose some of the best parts of different chapters. Right. Um, and I- I'm not a big fan of that as an author because I think it gives away too much of a book. An excerpt should really uh, get people's interest going. That Hey, I- that was a really good story. I want to find out more. Uh, and to do that, I think it has to be narrowly focused. So um, I thought SI would choose, and they did have the right to choose anything out of the book, um, something about Game 7. Because to me, I could have written an entire book about Game 7. I think as as much as I wrote about Game 7 in the magazine right after it happened, um, that there were more stories to tell. It it deserved a deeper dive. Um, if I didn't write this book, I probably would have been writing an SI story about game seven, uh, before the season this year. So I thought that was a natural fit for SI. I thought they did a great job editing, um, you know, a lot down because I, I think I wrote three chapters just on game seven. Yep. And obviously you can't fit all that in the magazine. So I think they did an excellent job with that. And then, um, Fortune Magazine ran an excerpt on Theo Esteem when they chose him as the world's greatest leader. Um, which got a lot of attention. So they, they hit the bullseye with choosing him as, uh, their world's greatest leader. Um, but I thought it was interesting that they chose that excerpt from the book, um, to run with that piece because I think Theo does have, uh, qualities as a leader that anybody in the business world can learn from. And, uh, I, you know, I was happily surprised when they came to me and said they wanted to take an excerpt uh, about Theo from the book.
2: The book itself uh, starts with Game 7, in a way. It starts at the manager's office, and it starts talking about Joe Madden and uh, kind of his preparation for the day, and I close my eyes, and I can picture him right now. Uh, My picture of him is him walking around with the iPad and the Apple Pencil, and uh, all the quirks of how he fills out his lineup card and the things that are on the card, and the decisions uh, that he made, who would bat second, and how that affected the rest of the lineup. And it's just this incredibly interesting chapter about how uh, all of the preparation that went into the manager getting ready for the game, his pitching plan, uh, which was incredibly interesting. Why did you start there? Um, And – It was just such an interesting chapter, I thought, and it really got me going on the book, Uh, especially the stuff about the pitching and about how, you know, he wanted, you know, oh, you know, maybe a bad matchup for. Or Ariadna wasn't even on his mind. Another pitcher was a bad matchup. You know, he kind of focused in on, on the three pitchers Hendricks, Lester, Chapman. Uh, just tell me a little bit about that first chapter. Uh, it's one of my favorite in the book. It's a Game 7 chapter, but it's almost a pre-Game 7 chapter. And I'm kind of all over the place with the question. Probably could have asked it better, but I'm just kind of passionate about that that piece. Tell us a little bit more about, about it, getting it together, and why you decided to open the book there.
3: Yeah, actually it was a very easy choice. Um, I was lucky that it, uh, the structure of the book came to me right away. Um and writing having only eight weeks to write a book, I was glad it came to the <laughs> good way, thing <laughs> rather than worrying about it. Um, but I, I wanted to take really two different lenses at the Cubs story. One was the the micro lens to look at that postseason and especially the World Series, but also the macro lens to pull away and say, how did we get to this point? What was it about Theo and the Cubs and Joe Madden and how they put this team together? Um, where's kind of the, the secret ingredients in the recipe that I can examine? So I did want to go back and forth between those. I wanted to build towards game seven and that crescendo. I wanted the book to pick up pace as it went along. Um, that there was a sort of a nervousness that a reader would, would feel, even though you know how it's going to end. Um, and so starting there, um, to me, it's like, you know, your toes are on the edge of the a, a high platform of a diving board, you know on the high dive, and the world is going to be different in a couple of hours. You know, we're going to have a World Series, which the Cubs are going to win a game seven for the first time in our lifetimes. So this is that moment right before the leap, and the baseball world will never be the same. But what was it like right before your feet left that board? Um, so pulling into that, that dramatic point, pulling into Joe Madden's office, he's such an interesting guy anyway, it's very easy to start with him. But also, as you know, there was a lot of controversy that's still out there about the way he managed the World Series. you know he was a focal point of the World Series, even in, even with the Cubs winning. Uh, and I had a lot of really good stuff from Joe about explaining what had gone on in detail that I had never heard before. Um, so to me, it, it for a lot of reasons, it's because Joe's so interesting because it's him explaining his strategy. Because you, as a reader, are literally going someplace you're not allowed to go. You're in the manager's office before the seventh game of a World Series, and he's going to tell you what his script was going into the game. Uh, and, again, the fact that we're right on the precipice of history. All those things brought me to that point. And I know everybody knows how it ends. It's not like you know there's a spoiler alert. Or, but I do think there's a certain drama in, in knowing how it ends when you're at the, the most... I think, compelling, nervous point right before the game when you don't know what's going to happen. So um, it's like going to a movie. You know how the movie's going to end, but um, the way it begins with some dramatic cliffhanger pulls you in, and hopefully that's what Chapter 1 does. It pulls you in.
2: Chapter 5 is kind of about that other part that you mentioned, the two kind of parts, the structure of the book. Uh, Chapter 5 is called The Plan, and it starts in 2012 all the way back to 2012. Um, and then you set up this scene, uh, in Arizona where Theo is, uh, standing in front of everyone in baseball operations for the Cubs. And, uh, I think the Rizzo trade maybe just happened. And, uh, it's kind of where you get into the execution of the wheels being put in motion to ending this 108 year, uh, curse if we can call it that which is probably a silly thing to call it drought drought is a better word um it got me thinking about theo ending two droughts um and thinking about another book that probably could start in 1999 or something in a room in a similar room in front of the baseball operations uh for the Red Sox. When you think about Theo and him being the man behind ending the two longest droughts, maybe in American sports, uh, at this point, how do you frame his legacy? Uh, and uh, how do you maybe compare um, or what? how much did you think or think about or look back at the Red Sox experience when you were shaping various chapters for Cubsway?
3: Well, first of all, I think he's already a Hall of Fame man, general manager at the age of 43. There's only been six in the Hall of Fame who <laughs> had that traditional, those traditional duties of a, of a general manager. Theo is definitely in that group. Um, I, I think... It's interesting you bring up that meeting in Arizona. I think the Theo Epstein, who stood in front of all the baseball ops people in Arizona in 2012, very different from the one who took the GM job in Boston uh, after the 2003 season. And I think different because, first of all, obviously he's older, and Theo would be the first to tell you more mature, um, but also advanced as a leader. He was, uh, you know, I, I think when Tom Ricketts interviewed him, he expected to find a wonk. You know, a guy who is totally into numbers and sabermetrics uh, and analytics, and he is. But I, I think he's evolved, and to understand that, yeah, that's a big part of the modern game and of building a team. But I think Theo learned from his years in Boston, especially some of the bad years, especially the last year, that chemistry really matters. And I thought it was fascinating to me that... When he pulls everybody together and he has a four-day summit meeting to talk about how he wants this team to play baseball, everything from soup to nuts about how pitchers warm up to what training regimens are going to be and how you're going to have infield practice, that one of those four days, the entire day, was spent on what kind of players we want. The character of the players had nothing to do with numbers. And that's not something he would have done as, an early, as a young GM early in Boston. And I think one of the great things about Theo, and there's a lot of great things about him, is that he constantly evolves and advances, and he learns. And I think he does that because he's always asking questions. I see a lot of similarities in someone like Pat Gillick, who's in the Hall of Fame. Pat Gillick surrounded himself with smart people and was smart enough to take their counsel and advice and ask questions. And that's Theo. Theo wants as much information as he can get. And that's statistical, that's emotional, that's psychological. Nothing is ruled out. And that includes nothing from people around him. You know, he, people think of him, and he, oh, he's this great leader, and as you mentioned, he broke two curses, two droughts. Um, but it's not a monarchy. It's not a dictatorship. And I think the way he uses all resources, including human resources, sets him apart from any other general manager in the game.
2: That speech was before the 2012 season, which turned out to be a really important one because, as you put in quotes, it helped them earn the second pick in the 2013 draft. And I thought that the parts about the 2013 draft were some of the most interesting uh, parts in the book. And maybe we're not having this conversation right now uh, if the Houston Astros pick Chris Bryant. Uh, talk a little bit for someone who's thinking about maybe making this a Father's Day purchase uh, about this draft and how, yeah, Theo's a genius. I think we'll both agree on that, but maybe it did take a little luck at times, too, and that's maybe somewhere where you can point at it. Uh, I think it was Jeff Passon, uh, who's a good friend of this show, tweeted, I told my son that Chris Bryant wasn't the first pick of the draft. And he said, someone was picked before Chris Bryant in a draft, and you did a great job telling that story in this book. Tell us a little bit about reporting on the 2013 draft.
3: Yeah, it's probably and maybe one of the two biggest moments for Theo Epstein. We just talked about how good he is as a general manager, president, uh, but there has to be luck involved. And To me, two of the biggest things that happened, and there's actually a lot of them, but two of the bigger ones, Number one was the breakthrough of Jake Arrieta, and even Thea will admit to you today, they had no idea he was going to turn out to be this good. They liked him. Don't get me wrong. They did all their homework, and that paid off. Um, but they didn't think they were getting a guy who became a Cy Young winner and pitched at an all-time great level for a while. And the other luck was getting Chris Bryant with that pick. The Houston Astros are holding the first pick in the draft. And you have to remember, it seems like... Time ago now, because of all the home runs and offense we have in the game today. But at the time, we were in, a, in an offensive drought, so to speak, where pitchers were dominating, and that's when velocity started peaking around baseball, and it was very easy to go look at these big-bodied pitchers just throwing the heck out of the uh, ball. Um, and Mark Appel was one of those pitchers. He looked like a one-one draft pick. Uh, with, you know, mid to upper nineties velocity, big body, look like a guy who threw, you know, 20, uh, 30 starts a year, 200 innings, a Justin Verlander type of guy coming out of college. Those guys are hard to pass up because of the way baseball traditionally looks at pitching. And that is, there's this theory out there, you can never have enough pitching. Um, good pitching beats good hitting. And that traditionally has been the mindset baseball. And it's fascinating to me to hear Theo explain. When he took over the Cubs, he was going to zig when everybody else was zagging. He was going to put the emphasis on position players. Now, he did that for two major reasons. Number one, as we're finding out now year after year, pitchers are fragile, and especially the ones who throw hard. To me, the harder pitchers throw, the more likely they are to break down, and there's actually some scientific research to to back that up. Uh, So as Jed Hoyer told me, we wanted to buy bonds instead of stocks. That is, position players, hitters more reliable than pitchers in today's game. That was one reason. The other reason was that he knew he had to totally transform this organization. This wasn't the Red Sox, where he had the the makings of a winner and he needed to finish off the team. This was building ground up, changing culture especially. And I know that, that phrase gets thrown around a lot in sports about changing culture. Uh, and, and sometimes it's just psychobabble. But in this case, it was true. A team that did not know how to win, and certainly the fans would tell you that, the whole lovable loser's image had to change in Chicago. Well, Theo's idea is, if I bring you know, a 1-1 pitcher out of the draft to the Cubs, he can't change that culture. He might be able to help us win. He might be able to lead a pitching staff, but he can't change the culture of a team. He can't be a team leader because pitchers are not team leaders. It has to be a guy who plays every day. And not only that, you have to play every day, you have to produce, and you also have to have the kind of character that other players are going to respond to and follow. I think there's no better example of that, to me, than Derek Jeter and the way that occurred in the clubhouse and around the Yankees during their winning years. So Theo is emphasizing position players. He meets Chris Bryant during a Big, Ten, uh, a Big West tournament in Stockton, California, it sits down with him with Jason McLeod, the scouting director, in a hotel to just interview him, find out. Obviously, they loved his skills, but wanted to find out more on a one-on-one basis what Chris Bryant was like, completely blown away. And anybody who's met Chris, that's very easy to imagine. First impressions when you sit down and talk to Chris Bryant, you are going to be blown away and ask yourself, man, is this guy really this nice and this, this real? And the answers are yes. So Theo came out of that meeting and said, that's exactly what a franchise player should be, and we want him as our franchise player. Now, a lot of people were talking up, up Appel and Mark Gray, uh, John Gray, a pitcher Gray from, from Oklahoma. Oklahoma. Same yep. deal. Yeah, hard thrower, big guy, looked like he's going to be a stud in the major leagues, hard to pass up if you're drafting. So it was interesting to me that the Cubs sent out, and this happens a lot in the draft, they sent out some smoke screens. They were talking up John Gray and Mark Appel um, about how difficult it was to choose between the two of them. Holding the number two pick in the draft, the Rockies had the number three pick. The Rockies thought for sure that the Cubs were taking whatever pitcher the Astros didn't take. That the Rockies were thrilled that they thought they were getting Chris Bryant. I mean, that's how much the Cubs sold the idea that they were not necessarily on Bryant. Of course, they were, um, but not to the to the degree that a lot of people thought they were. Uh, but again, it came down to they can only get Bryant if the Astros lead Bryant for them. And the Astros did. They did it for a couple of reasons. Number one, we talked about the importance of pitching. Number two, Appel grew up in the Houston area. I think that, that local connection is sort of an emotional one that teams make. I'm not a big believer in it at all. I don't think it should be a factor, but it is a human element. People do factor that in. Um, and, and they just thought it was, he was too good of a pitcher to pass up. So really only because Houston bought into the traditional way of thinking, you have to go with starting pitchers, that the Cubs got exactly the guy they wanted. The Cubs had the number one pick in the draft that year. Believe me, they would have taken Chris Bryant, and he turned out to be everything that they thought they were getting in Chris Bryant. He truly is a guy that, uh, to me, he may be not just a franchise player, one of the most valuable properties to have in baseball, because you can build a team around him.
2: And it's funny you mentioned you mentioned Derek Jeter in there, too, because that's another guy the Astros could have picked as a 1-1 uh, and didn't. Uh, the are here with Tom Verducci talking about his book, The Cubs Way, the design of building the best team in baseball and breaking the curse. It's available uh, wherever books are sold. And, of course, he mentioned earlier e-books, audio books. Uh, you can download it uh, on iTunes, uh, which is something I did Uh, because I do enjoy reading the books on the iPad, and it looks fantastic uh, there as well. Let me get one or two more quick ones in on the other part of this, and I'll let you go. Uh, You talked about Game 7 and how that could have probably been a SI long-form column, maybe, if you didn't write this book. And there's a couple of things when I think about that Game 7 that just jump out, and one of them is the rain delay... And the huddle in the weight room, and Jason Hayward earning a hundred million dollar contract by giving maybe the most epic pep talk in the history of baseball. That's the lore, anyway. Uh, when you when you uh, when you went into Game Seven and reported it, what's your take on the rain delay? How important it was to the Cubs winning, and uh, what went on uh, while the Cubs waited to get back on the field?
3: Now, this may come across as hyperbole, but it's not. But in my view, the Cubs do not win the World Series without that rain delay. As I said, I was down there in the camera well right next to the Cubs dugout. You know, I can even talk to some of the players during a game when I'm down there for Fox. Um, And I can tell you after Rajai Davis hit that home run, I'm not going to say the Cubs were a dead team, but they were flat. There was no question about it. There was no energy in the dugout. Uh, It was a team that was thinking about the consequences of blowing a three-run lead five outs away from winning the first World Series in 108 years. That was on their minds. There's no question in my mind. uh, Their body language, their lack of energy, it was obvious. After the rain delay, it was a completely different team. I mean, it's like Texas high school football Friday night lights charging out in the field uh, saying, we're going to win this game. It was a complete 180. Um, I do have to backtrack a little bit to tell you, as the rain delay hit, I actually jumped into the Cubs' dugout to get out of the rain. And by then, just about all of them were out of the dugout until there was just a role as Chapman, who was sitting there. He was sitting on the top of the bench in the Cubs' dugout towards the home plate side. I was more towards the first base side. And uh, someone came down to tell Chapman there was a team meeting and he needed to come back. Chapman got up so slowly as if he was physically hurt and wounded. And I could see it on his face. And as he gets closer to me, I could see that he's crying. And it was a really touching thing to see this guy who's, you know, one of the strongest players in the Cubs. I mean, as Joe Madden said, he's built like wrapped steel and he is just beaten physically, emotionally, mentally to the point as he walks by me, he actually reached out and grabbed me by the wrist almost uh I get the sense almost to steady himself because he was so shaked, uh, shaken at that time. I had no idea that, uh, that they were meeting in the weight room, not that far behind me. You know, Of course, we didn't know about the meeting until after the game. But as I said, when they came out, uh, I could hear the, the energy, the confidence more than anything else that was not there before they went into that room. Uh, so I know it sounds like a Hollywood script. It sounds like we're putting too much emphasis on something that we can't measure. Uh, but if you were down there, you would feel the same way that I did, that it completely changed the direction of that game. And, of course, you know, Kyle Schwarber, uh, who's sort of an emotional leader anyway, the Cubs happens to be the first guy who's going to lead off the 10th inning after all that emotion. And, you know, Kyle's grabbing his bat, going out there to, right before he goes to home plate, and he's telling people, I got this, guys. I got this, guy." I got it, um, and it was just tremendous amount of confidence—not just energy, but confidence. And when he gets that base hit, and he's running down to first base, and he turns to the dugout, pumping a fist, uh, that was, you know, all for one, one for all at that point. And I, I think the momentum was just, just was something that you could feel at that point.
2: You know, I, I, I don't, I don't think it's hyperbole at all. I'm, I'm not too jaded by. By the um, by, sabermetrics or by the numbers, to not be able to believe in that stuff now and again, you know. Uh, I hope we don't lose it. completely. Right, nor should you. I mean, yeah, you have
3: to. To me, you have to make room for the human element in the game, and that's also a big part of the book in terms of both the perspectives of Joe Madden and Theo Epstein, and uh, and Joe Madden be the first one to tell you that that you know metrics and analytics didn't win the World Series at that point. You know, they're really not going to to turn the tide in such a small sample, but emotions do come into play. Uh, and I'll never forget, after the game, after I found out that Hayward was the one who called the meeting and what happened in that room, and, you know, Chapman was in that room crying, Addison Russell was crying, guys were completely flat going into that weight room and, and just down, uh, that I saw, Theo after the game, we were back in the food room, the visiting clubhouse there in Cleveland, and he had heard the meeting. He had walked by the room. He had heard the meeting, and he said at that point, because he was nervous and he was down himself, that's when he said, we're going to win this game, when he heard what was coming out of that room. But he didn't know who had called the meeting. I told him that in the food room after the game, and I could see him almost like a proud father. Just a, a smile started to crease on his face. Like, how cool is that? This guy who's really had the the roughest postseason of of any regular on the Cubs and probably uh, the entire season, not just the postseason, in a moment of crisis, while he's in this deep, deep slump, thinks not about himself but about the team. And what can I do to help us win in a way that if I can't do it at the plate, what can I do? Uh, And he's not a vocal guy. As you probably know, Jason Hayward doesn't say a whole lot. Uh, And I just saw this look on Theo Epstein's face like, you know, to borrow a phrase from the Cubs, that's Cub. You know, that's thinking about the team more than yourself in a moment of crisis. And I think whenever Jason Hayward comes back to Chicago 20, 30 years from now, uh, it doesn't matter what he does over the rest of this contract. You know, it's sort of like David Roberts stealing that base for the Red Sox in 04 against the Yankees. You know, he'll never have to buy a meal in that town. Right. And not because of a hit or a stolen base, because he called that meeting.
2: I actually have the quote right here that you were talking about. Uh, after Epstein found out about Hayward, he says that's amazing that he stayed not only connected to this team, but in the middle of everything and despite his offensive struggles, he stepped up. It speaks to his character and his professionalism. Um, I just happen to have that highlighted.
3: Uh, yeah, and that's that's a tribute to culture that, you know, especially Joe Madden, but everybody in the, court, the Cubs organization uh, helped cultivate where you are – team-oriented and win-oriented over individual result-oriented.
2: Let me ask you, we can end on this, let me ask you to tap back into into your own head for a second. As someone who's covered baseball for as long and as well as you have, you've done so many different things, whether it be calling the World Series in the booth, reporting it from the field, writing about it from the press box, uh watching it from your living room as a kid or whatever uh when the cubs made the last out and ended the 108 year drought uh what went through tom verducci's mind how did just as a baseball guy uh what were you looking at what what were you feeling what, what did you see take me through the minute and a half or 2 minutes after that game ended if you can through your eyes
3: well, I can tell you that it's, it's nothing that's too dramatic, because at that point, you know, my job is to immediately start getting on-field interviews for Fox. So it's extremely focused. Um, you know, I, I know the guys I want to try to get quickly, um, and then I remember finding out very quickly about the meeting with Hayward and then I knew I had to get Jason Hayward because I knew he was such a big part of this narrative and especially that night. So, you know, I never was able to really stand back and think about the magnitude of what had just happened. It's a very hyper-focused moment, Um, running from one guy to another, um, formulating questions. Uh, It's just... I don't know. It's like, uh, I've never driven, uh, a race car. <laughs> it would seem to be like you're in a race car in an Indy 500 or something, and, um, your focus has to be a hundred percent sharp on what you're doing. But I will tell you this, it wasn't just the last out, but, uh, I think especially during game three, the first one at Wrigley Field, um, but several times in the course of covering the World Series there were times where I did stop and kind of look around and basically say, how cool is this? You know, I thought about not just, you know, the Billy Williams, the Ron Santos, the Ernie Banks, all the Cubs players, of course, never got a chance to play in the world series and how great it was for these players and these fans. But for me as a journalist, I thought about how many people had covered baseball as a writer or a broadcaster who never got the chance to call a Cubs world series. And, you know, as it turned out at Cubs World Series Championship, um, that I really truly felt privileged to have a literal front row seat to what was history in front of you. You know, a lot of times you don't know you're looking at history until it happens. You know, until Kirk Gibson hits that home run, you know, you didn't know you were looking at history. Until Joe Carter hits that home run, you knew. And it's, again, especially going into game three at Wrigley Field, that. You know, you were on the doorstep of history, but this was a a game that was beyond just another World Series game, as big as those are. Um, So I did feel privileged in the course of covering the series. There's no question about it. You know, my appreciation for Cubs um, history, you know, and obviously knowing the whole narrative of that. But baseball history in general, I'm not a Cubs fan, but I am a fan of just baseball in general and the history of the game. So that was a big part, I, I think, to me. Appreciation is the word that comes to mind, and privilege. It really was a privilege to be there.
2: Well, Tom Verducci covers baseball for Sports Illustrated. Um, Sports Illustrated, of course, you can get on newsstands and on the iPad. I recommend it. It looks beautiful on there. Uh, the book is called The Cubs Way, The of Building the Best Team in Baseball and Breaking the Curse. And it's available at Barnes & Noble, where books are sold, and Amazon. Uh, it's eligible for Amazon Prime if you're a member of that. Uh, you can also get an ebook version of it, uh, as I mentioned. I did. Uh gang looks fantastic on an iPad. A great way to read if you enjoy that, it, Mr. Verducci. My favorite thing about reading on the iPad is I can do it in bed while my wife is sleeping and not have to have a light on uh, and not disturb her. It's, <laughs> it's a fantastic thing. Yeah. Uh, and Father's Day. That, is,
3: and and when you that when you travel and you're on an airplane, it, it's. Takes up a lot less space. Yeah, nice. uh, but also I think it looks uh, it looks really good. It um, does. One of the highlights for me was including in the book the lineup card from Joe Madden game from Game Seven of the World Series, and that's just a visual treat. Um, in fact, too, that we talked earlier about access. Two of the things that really I felt um, were access paid off was Joe Madden giving me that lineup from Game Seven. It's a historical baseball document that fans can have in their hands and see all the quirkiness of it besides just the historical importance of it. And the Cubs way, the literal, the first, the original Cubs way was the manual that Theo Epstein put together when he got there in 2012. And Theo gave me a copy of that, uh, 250 some page manual. So getting the access to documents like that, that people had never seen before, uh, is a big part of, of access paying off. And for a reader to, uh, again, to have that, lineup card in your hands whether it's in the book or whether it's in the ipad it's a really pretty cool thing
2: and i'm looking at it right now it's super cool and if you look at it you think i have no idea what any of this means but quickly after reading uh it's a you do a great job of kind of breaking down what each number means and um uh just really cool you made me think one last thing i promise this is it we'll let you out on this Uh, Comedian Craig Gass, I don't know if you've ever seen this, shot a video of The Last Out. He's standing right behind home plate, and just in front of him is Theo Epstein and his wife, I think at least one of his kids, and Eddie Vedder. And um, it's that section, obviously, that you see all the kind of famous people that are there, uh, you know... uh, Bill Murray, uh, you get to see them all kind of react to the last out. It's a really cool video, uh, but it's interesting to me that it's uh, it's v- v- um, Epstein and Vetter together, and Epstein's son is wearing a jacket uh, that Eddie Vetter gave him. That was Eddie Vetter's when he was a youngster. Um, that's a little tidbit I know about the Eddie Vetter and Theo Epstein relationship. You got anything there? You know anything about Eddie Vetter and Theo Epstein, you can share with us.
3: Yeah, that that's a cool story, by the way. Um, yeah, it actually goes back. The relationship began when Theo was, uh, I don't think he was quite general manager. It might have been 2003 when he was working in Boston. He's always been a big Pearl Jam fan and got tickets. The equipment manager um, for the band got uh, tickets for Theo, Jed Hoyer, um, I think Peter Woodfork. There were a few guys from the front office who were able to go actually on back-to-back nights, um, and they didn't meet Eddie the first night, but they met backstage after the second night, and they told him, "Hey, Eddie, you know you can come out to Fenway Park tomorrow early um, and take batting practice on the field." And Eddie Vedder is such a baseball fan that you know he he followed baseball obviously the Cubs his whole life, but he actually had a glove with him. And he had the glove on the nightstand after going to bed. Now, the kicker to the story is he went to bed only after he spent all night drinking with the, the, <laughs> the warm-up band, the Buzzcocks. So he actually slept through the hitting session at Fenway Park the next day. So Theo got out of him about that, and that's actually how their relationship began. It's a really cool friendship. And I think where they connect as well is they're both very humble people who are superstars in their own right, uh, but don't want all the trappings that come with superstardom. In fact, they actually downplay the kind of individual attention that they both get and deserve. Uh, so I think they're cut from the same cloth. They have a very similar soul when it comes to humility. And it is a very, very close relationship. So uh, I guess the other story is after... Cubs won the National League pennant. And of course, that was against the Dodgers in Game 6. Um, guys were out celebrating. Most of the everybody went to John Lester's house that night to continue the celebration. Uh, and then later that night, at about, uh, I was probably 4 or 5 a.m. before the sun came up, there were these two guys who just snuck into Wrigley Field and went on the field and just started playing catch and tossing the ball around. And this is the night the Cubs won the pennant and are going to the world series for the first time since 1945 and it's eddie vetter and it's theo epstein uh-huh. I, I just think that was so cool so and it cool. Just shows you not just their friendship but their love of the game of baseball not every all the trappings that come with it because they're out there by themselves uh and what's cooler than just throwing a baseball around with your buddy whether you're nine years old or or 39 years old and uh Yeah, I I think those guys share a similar soul, and it's a really cool friendship.
2: Boy, I'm glad I snuck that one in there. Mr. Verducci, anything else you want to plug? Anything else you want to mention?
3: No, I thank you for the opportunity. It's been a real pleasure to talk about not just the book, but kind of how it came together. So thank you.
2: Yeah, this was really fun. Thanks for all the time. I hope it wasn't too much, and uh, I can't wait to get you back later in the season, and we'll talk about – uh, the league as a whole. If we can uh, later on, we'll catch up.
3: Sounds great. Thanks for having me again.
2: All right, I want to thank Tom Verducci for being on the podcast today. Really appreciate that. My favorite thing about this version of the Final Fantasy Fanfare I picked out is apparently it would go for 10 hours if I let it. But we have other business and that is the Book Club Book of the Year. It is that time where we pick the Book Club Book of the Year. And what I have done is I have narrowed it down to one, two, three, four, five, six, seven finalists this year. Seven finalists for the Book Club Book of the Year, and they are as follows The Cubs Way Design of Building the Best Team in Baseball and Breaking the Curse by Tom Verducci. We just spent about fifty minutes talking with him talking to him about that book, and it is a finalist for the Book Club Book of the Year. Playing through the whistle steel football. In an American Town by S.L. Price. This is a book that we anticipated as a podcast and look forward to for literally years. Came out and did not disappoint. It's one of the seven finalists for the book club book of the year. Along those same lines, Gunslinger, The Remarkable, Improbable, Iconic Life of Brett Favre by Jeff Perlman. It's another book. For years, we waited and talked about it uh, with Jeff, and it is a finalist for Book Club Book of the Year. Jeff's book, Sweetness, was the first ever winner of the Book Club Book of the Year. Another finalist, a book called I Was There by Eric Merlis. Uh, Eric joined us over the winter to talk about this book, I Was There. Kind of a cool compilation of stories from people like Joe Buck and Bob Costas and Jim Nance. Uh, basically reliving the most exporting sporting events of their lives that they attended. Uh, we had a lot of fun with this book. Uh, it is one of the seven finalists for Book Club Book of the Year. Belichick and Brady. Two men, the Patriots and how they revolutionized football by Michael Holly, One of the finalists. He's probably not going to win, and I'm going to be honest, because he blew us off. If you blow us off, if you promise you're going to be on the show, and then you blow us off, probably finalist is the best you're going to do, no matter how good your book is. Uh, I'd know that voice anywhere. My favorite NPR commentary is by the late, great Frank DeFord. Is one of the seven finalists. And finally, Lucky Bastard. Joe Buck, my life, my dad, and the things I'm not allowed to say on TV. Those are the seven finalists this year for Book Club Book of the Year. Uh, Next week, we will eliminate three. Uh, The week after that, we will eliminate three more, and then we will announce... Well, I guess we'll eliminate two more, because we'll have to have two remaining uh, going into that last week when we will announce... Uh, The winner of the Book Club Book of the Year. Uh, Previous winners, Sweetness by Jeff Perlman. Um, What else won this award? Dream Team by McCollum. Molly Knight's book about the Dodgers won last year. And Console Wars by Blake J J. Harris are the four winners of the Book Club Book of the Year, and they wait a fifth, which we will announce in three programs from now. Next week, we'll eliminate three of the finalists. The final week, two more. That will have us narrowed down to two, and we will announce the winner of the Book Club Book of the Year. All right, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back with the managing editor of Ringer.com, Brian Curtis, a really good friend of the program. Again, I did experiment with FaceTime audio. I won't do it again. I know it will be a little distracting. I apologize, but uh, please stick with it. There's some really great content, and we did a really great interview uh, with Brian. So let's take a break, and we'll be right back. Alright, our next guest grew up in Texas, went to the University of Texas, I don't hold it against him, and is a long-time friend of the show, a warm sportscaster's welcome to Brian
0: Curtis. What's up, Brian? How you doing, buddy? I feel we should be doing this from uh, Big 12 Media Days A most. That's right. That's we should be the remote, we should be the Paul Feinbaum of Big 12 Media Days. Let's do it.
2: It's a new era. It's a new era of Texas OU football. What was, what was your reaction to the news that Bob Stoops was abruptly leaving Oklahoma?
0: Absolutely shocked. So Absolutely I. shocked. I mean, at first, you kind of think like, oh, my gosh, what happened? You know? Right. And then kind of reading about it, just seemed like, you know, his he was, he was getting up there. His dad had actually died on a football field, you know, was a coach. And, you know, he was kind of getting to that point in his middle age. And he was just like, "I'm I'm good, you know, time to go. Yeah, you're waiting for the other
2: shoe to drop, like a scandal or you say the wrong thing to a secretary or a recruit to the pressure from mixing it. Like, but it just doesn't seem like it was any of that. It just seems like no. it, it was just simply he was good.
0: Yeah, and he'd kind of, you know, I think he'd kind of like if they, look, if they were still, gave it a good national championship run two years before, right? And, yeah, and they I lost think if the they semis, were still... Yeah. Boston semi to Clemson. I think if they were still you know, if they'd done it again the next year, yeah, maybe he hangs around, says, Oh, can I squeeze one more out of here? Squeeze another playoff appearance. But I think after last season he was like, All right, I'm good.
2: Yeah, and I mean when you look back at it, two thousand uh, nineteen ninety nine was his first year, two thousand they win the national championship. He has more wins against top five teams than any other coach in the time that he was there. Plenty of games that he lost, but I think he—it's been unfair, like the whole big game Bob thing. I think kind of the mockery of it has been unfair because when you statistically do look at it, I mean, he's been better than anyone else in his era. But he did—he did leave a few on the table, you know. There's no doubt. He,
0: he, yeah, no one has been haunted more by a nickname that he didn't want than Bob Stoops. Right. I also think—I mean, just to say, just to put this in perspective for me, a University of Texas grad. Obviously, Bob Stoops was hired my after my junior year of college um i am now 39 years old so nobody has haunted my adulthood like bob stoops i mean he has been <laughs> he has been the guy who has just been the, the boogeyman of my whole life trump has a long way to go to catch up with bob stoops it's been pretty amazing
2: yeah because i don't even know that there's a bad texas loss on the table There's been a few. I think, I want to say he finished 10 and 7 against him. So obviously he lost, but I don't ever remember thinking, all right, we got to go beat Texas today and shitting it. I mean, I remember losing when Texas was up, winning when we were up, and then basically splitting the games when the teams were in the middle. That's the way I feel about it looking back.
0: Yeah, and they probably he probably won a few more when when they were both up, you know, right. or when you at least going into the game and then it turned into a crazy 50-point thing. I'm I'm like amazed that he didn't squeeze out another national title. I mean, I think that would have been really surprising after after the first one, given how ba- how well he played against Texas, given how he dominated conference championships in the Big 12, like that was his thing, right? They just won he like they would seem like they won conference every single year. That he didn't kind of squeeze one more out is, is surprising to me. I think there's a
2: really good chance he squeezes one out two years ago if they get to play Alabama and Dallas that first game. Ooh. He's at least I, – I think they, they have just played so well against the SEC in the last five years, including Alabama, who they had thumped, thumped in a sugar bowl a couple years before. Um, I think if they get to play that game in Dallas uh, – I just love their chances in that game. And then I don't know who 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 did it who did Alabama play that year? Was it Ohio State? It must have been Ohio State, right? Yeah, it was Ohio State. So then you take your chance against Ohio State Clemson the next year. That game looks bad on paper, I guess, after, but it the Clemson game was basically a push at halftime.
0: You know, Clemson just outplayed him yes. in the second half.
2: It's not like they were it's not like they were outmanned in that game. They could
0: have won that game. And and didn't know you Lose, like, two running backs in that game? Yep, both of them. Like, and two guys get... Yeah, Mixon yeah. and P.
2: Ryan both got hurt in that game. And that's
0: what made their offense go. Yeah. yeah. And that was and at that point, that was they were done.
2: How, like, do you think the Mixon scandal, if you want to call it that, I, I don't even like calling it that, but the Mixon situation or anything else that happened uh, at OU, as someone who would love to find something, uh, you know, to be able to throw shade at the guy... To either of those, <laughs> like, because I'd be the same way. Wait a minute. I'd be the same way. I'd be the same way. Look, if we were talking opposite, I'd be trying to find that thing to shit on Texas about. So I know you thought long and hard about how can I shit on Stoops and OU. Is that you going to run with the mixing thing, or is it something else? Or, you, or do you feel like he was a respectable uh, coach that, is he your Steve Young? Like Steve Young killed the Saints for years and years and years, but I always respected him. Or if we want to stick to the rivalry, I love Derek Johnson. I have nothing bad to say about him. He killed us for four years, but he's one of the greatest linebackers in the history of the Big Twelve. Uh, so, I, guy was amazing. Amazing guy was I have nothing bad to say about him. Uh, wish he would have been on my team. So, like, what is it with you and, and Stoops? Like, what's the uh, uh, what's the final thought there?
0: Yeah, it's, it's for. I, I feel like I experienced this with every OU player. Is I hated their guts more than anything in the world in the moment, and then as soon as the moment faded, I was like, that guy was incredible. <laughs> it was like Sam, Sam Bradford, uh, Peterson. A.D., yeah. Peterson, especially Jason White. You know, I just couldn't imagine Jason White like being a Heisman, but being even a, a good quarterback, much less being a Heisman winner. You know, all the way back. Um, but you know, with Stoops. I think I, over the years, I kind of got to. I, I got to respect him a lot more. I did not want him to leave college football as a scoundrel. <laughs> that would not have made me happy. But you know, I think like I think the thing about the mix and stuff is, I think it probably just wore on him more than anything. I think these guys. I saw that with Mac in the last couple of years. You know, he didn't have like a ton of what you would call quote unquote scandals. But when he did have stuff like discipline stuff and that stuff, you could tell he just he did not want to do that. I mean, he was like, I'm too old for this. I'm old enough to it, to coach but I'm just too old to deal with all this stuff and all the questions and all the media stuff. I just can't do it. And I think that really wears on guys when they're in the final final, final act like that. And, you know, I'm going to be
2: honest. I think Stoops thinks he did the right thing with Mixon. And I Absolutely. Think, and I think he knows there's no way he's going to be able to sell it because, because of the video and how bad the video looks. And believe me, you watch that video, you want to gag. There's no doubt about it. You know what I mean? But I think Stoops feels like... Mixon hadn't even been there a month, you know, and I feel like he felt like he went into the living room of a five-star recruit and told his family he was going to turn this kid into a man, and I don't think that he was ready to, uh, to, to walk away from him, and, and that's, obviously, he was a five-star recruit, we can't get away from that, if he's a one-star recruit, my guess is he boots him. But,
0: oh, yeah. But he, that's the reality of college right, football. But that's
2: the reality. But he was who he was, and I think Stoops thinks that Joe Mixon is a better guy today because they didn't boot him. And I think yeah. Yeah, Stoops thinks he did the right thing, and I, I know it's a hard sell, but I, I just don't know. It's so complicated, especially for two dudes to talk about it. But uh, It is.
0: Yeah. I bet if you ask Stoops, I think he'd say, I'd handle it. I'd handle the everything the same way except... I would do the PR differently, you know. I would have Mixon, Make you know, get do a long and
2: talk, right? Yeah, yeah, rather
0: than kind of be like, "I'm not talking about this." When everybody's like, "You need to, you need to, you need to talk about this." Like, this is this is your life. This is all everybody knows about you, and you need to talk about this. But again, that doesn't address the moral part of it at all. That's just that's just the PR,
2: you know. And in the end, I mean, he Stoops punished him exactly the same way the courts did, you know. So if we want to criticize Stoops' punishment, we have to criticized the way the legal system handled it as well, and I haven't heard that, really. Because nobody knows who those people are. They're, like, face licks, faceless judges and district attorneys in Oklahoma. But, I mean, they basically came to the same the same conclusion. And people always hammer on Oklahoma, oh, you gave them a red shirt. Oklahoma doesn't give out red shirts. The NCAA does. It has nothing to do with Oklahoma at all. And then the other thing about the suppression of the video, that also had nothing to do with Oklahoma. That was, like, the ACLU of Oklahoma and the uh, citizens fought that out. That had nothing to do. Bob Stoops wasn't like hiding the video in his uh, in his locker room somewhere. You know?
0: Here's uh, here's something that's popped up on Texas message boards that kind of fascinates me. Of course, all a couple of the Texas people are like, you know what, Oklahoma? They don't have, you know, they're not located in a, in a natural recruiting area. They're just, you know, now that Stoops is gone, that program's going to fall away. And I'm like, wait a second. You know, this is a school that went Bud Wilkinson,
1: right,
0: Barry Switzer, and then with a couple of, you know, mulligans in there, Bob Stoops. Like they've had three all timers. They've been way more relevant than the University of Texas, which has which checks all those boxes, right, about natural resources and recruiting all that stuff, big state, all that stuff over the last forty years. I mean, there's just no question about it. It's not even close. One more national titles, however you want to measure it. And I'm just like why? Why do we think that? <laughs> why? You know, maybe Lincoln Riley won't be great, but what's to make why do we think that Oklahoma is going to be Nebraska and just go into this huge funk? They've never really done that for an extended period of time, and again, in forty years, so I'm not, I'm not convinced that that's going to happen at all,
2: right? And in regards to Lincoln Riley, first of all, he's won a ton of battles so far. I'm not a huge recruiting guy, but I keep an eye on it, and he's got, he's already gotten a bunch of commits. And by the way, if Stoops would have stayed, every single job opening. They came available, Lincoln Riley would have been at the top of every short list. Yeah, you know and I mean he was the next He was the next guy to be everyone's future head coach. And every fan base would have jumped at the opportunity to have him. So
0: Yeah, it's funny how many offensive minds came through there, right? That yeah. worked in the kind of in that orbit. You know, it's like Leach, didn't he have like a cup of coffee there? Yeah. Kevin yes. Wilson. Kevin Wilson, Kevin Sumlin. And Lincoln was kind of the last, you know, offensive guy, offensive wonderkin, Heiple, to come in, and like, all right, you you you, you arrived at the right time, buddy.
1: You sure
2: <laughs> the did. Programs yours. yeah, you sure did. There was an awesome picture the day that Soup's retired, an overhead shot of the stadium the day he arrived, and an overhead shot of the stadium the day he left, and you can just see the growth in Oklahoma football <laughs> over that time.
0: It's, it's unbelievable. That's how we measure those guys, right? Yeah. I and mean, I mean, at, at, at the end of the day, it's like, did you get the stadium enlarged? That means you were – Boy, did he ever.
2: Boy, did he ever. I mean, it's it's crazy if you can find those pictures. Sports guests are here talking to our friend Brian Curtis from ringer.com. Uh, while we were off, ringer.com celebrated a birthday. Happy birthday.
0: Thank you. Thank you.
2: What has been the best thing you have done on Ringer so far in
0: one year? Whew. man! I don't, I don't do a lot of end zone dances. You know, I'm not, uh, don't watch a lot of balls go over the fence, but um, you know, I was really proud of the Joe Buck story. Joe Buck friend of this podcast. Day it launched. was the day it launched. That a, day that launch. that was, yeah, that was day one. You know, I was happy like write about Dick Vitale, Chris Mortenson, those guys. That'd be on the I guess on the short list. Yeah,
2: that buck piece was fantastic. It was my favorite thing on launch day. I think that in the last month, I can think of three ringer pieces that have been about as good as anything that's been on the site. I thought Katie Baker did an unbelievable job writing about League of, uh, A League of Their Own. Uh, love that <laughs> piece. I thought – I'm not going to remember who wrote it, but somebody – during Wire Week, wrote an unbelievable piece about the fourth season of The Wire and did a great job of kind of explaining season four and the students, the four students involved, without having to watch the first three seasons of The Wire and season four. I just thought yeah, you did that a was great job. Of, that was Al-
0: Alan Siegel, one of my buddies. Oh, great story.
2: Awesome piece. Awesome piece. And I had a third one in mind that I'm gonna forget, but I don't know i just thought I just think that the uh, the writing is is getting better and better and um the po- the 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 podcast uh part of it keeps growing um do you think that do you think that ringer strives to be a podcast company that has a website or a website that has a podcast arm or some kind of you know
0: I've never felt either one, the pull of that either one has supremacy. I think we couldn't imagine not doing either one, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's just like, it's kind of like, and that's, and that comes from Bill. That's always been Bill. You know, he's always, he's done both for so long now. Right. But I think they kind of nicely sit in concert and you're right about the podcast thing growing. On I was there yesterday at the head, at uh, Ringer HQ, I was like, Bill was standing there. And then Larry Wilmore walked out of a door and I was like, oh, wow. We got he does a pod for us now. It's like we got people here now. This is amazing. We got we got big stars.
2: Yeah, and there's certain things that Ringer does really well. Like I know this is part of HBO, uh, but last year uh, when Game of Thrones was on and there was the Game of Thrones after show. I mean, never in the first six seasons of Game of Thrones did I understand the show more than I did that year because. (laughs) Because like I'm one of these guys who I haven't read the books, I enjoy the show, but I have no goddamn idea what's going on in this show. You know what I mean? Like I'm trying so hard, but I don't know anyone's name, I get, I get so confused, I mean, I'm brutal. And just, I've been listening to some of the binge mode uh, to prepare, and just the things I've been learning about this show that I thought I watched, I, I mean, I think I watched, I know I watched all the episodes, but apparently... I was in a coma for half of them or something but, <laughs> I mean just uh that's another thing I mean just uh the the culture is good there, you know, and uh the football, I thought the combination of uh Kelly and um Clark and Mays. Clark and Mays did an unbelievable job last year
0: they were they were great yeah. they were really great and all different you know all very very coming at the game in completely different ways which is really cool to see
2: yeah the combination of three uh what would you like to see grow in ringer in year two
0: i think it's just sort of like everything you know i mean i think i think the hardest thing about doing a website now is just living within this crazy news cycle that we all live in you know, and if you're just on Twitter all day and you're just like, things are happening and things are dropping onto your head and huge stories in all parts of life, in pop culture and sports and pop, everything, I think what we will get better at and we've already gotten better at is just like, you no, know, I know. That, and mostly I speak personally because I think probably other people do it a lot better than I do. It's just like, you're like, how how many times do I react? You know, how many times do I go in on this stuff? Or how many times do I say, okay. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna bite at that worm. I'm gonna wait. I'm gonna work on my longer term thing that I'm working on. I mean, that's just like the hardest thing of living. You know, writing now It's just because so much is going on, and you just kind of have to pick your spots. You really do.
2: I think that the further that we've gotten away from the election, too, I think the uh, there's been more of a focus on the things the site was in initially intended to be about when it launched. Um, I wasn't a huge fan, necessarily, of the focus on the politics. I understood it. Um, yep. I understood why it existed. Um, and we talked about this before. I mean, it was... It was, unfortunately, at least from my view, a representation of only one half of the politics themselves. Um, so I've been happy to see it kind of, like, drift away from that a little bit. But, um yeah, I I think the second half of the year was, was awesome.
0: Yeah, it's like it feel it does it feels like it's. I think I told maybe I said this last time, but I was like when you when you do a startup, the first thing is you can't even believe when the when the website comes online. You're like, I can't believe we have a website. I can't believe this is a thing because all you're worried about is all the lead up and all the just like it's all brainstorming. It's all notion. All like, of a sudden, oh my gosh, you have a website. And then you realize, like, and then you get through day one or day two, week one. You're like, oh wait, we have to feed this thing <laughs> to keep going, you know. And now it's like year one. And you're like, oh my gosh, year two. Now what am I going to do? You know, sit out and figure that out. But it's but it's fun, I, and I I agree. I think I thank you for saying that, and I agree. I think it's like we we get better all the time. That's what we want to do.
2: I would have been a huge advocate in the room for Side B. I think that's such a sick name. You know. But... <laughs> I would have been huge that was, for side B. I would have been huge. I would have been fighting to the death for side
0: B. You know, I wasn't. I was. I came on after that amazing conversation because I, I think I, I. think I signed on. I was like, wait, what? What's the name of this thing? What do we <laughs> call this deal that I just signed up for? But uh, yeah, there was some. There was some great. There's some great like different histories of this whole thing if we'd gone down any of those paths, right?
2: Tonight is a huge media thing. As soon as I'm done with you, I am rushing to the TV. Uh, to watch the Mike and the Mad Dog 30 for 30. Uh, Mike and the Mad Dog is the greatest sports radio show of all time, period. I have no problem declaring that. Uh, They talked in their town hall, I don't know if you heard it on Sirius, about some of the huge advantages they had, obviously being in New York City, uh, being there in the early stages, they got the 94 run of the Rangers and the Knicks. They got OJ. They got the, the the rise of the Yankees again. Um, you know, they got to M- be they, – they, they, so much happened uh, for them to be, be there. But, I mean, there was other guys in other chairs across the city. And, you know, when I think about radio, I think about the Howard Stern Show. Yes. And I think about Mike and the Mad Dog as two separate genres doing it as well as anyone will ever do it. Curious oh, yeah. about your thoughts about Mike and the Mad Dog. Have you seen the 30 for 30 yet? And what do you think the future holds for Francesa as he winds down at WFAN?
0: I uh, haven't seen the movie, but I did interview Francesa in May. I you know, went to his office there at WFAN, which was amazing. And it was amazing to be in the presence of somebody like that. You're like, oh my gosh, the Mike Francesa. Here he is talking to me, watching CNBC out of the corner of his eye so he can keep track of his stock picks. <laughs> um, you know, that was awesome. I think, you know, when you mentioned Howard Stern, like it's it, it they are a match set in a way. And I think it's just it goes by. I've been, people have been talking this like, like why why was that show so big? What was it about that show? Cuz we're talking about like maybe Chris Christie coming in for for Mike. And and I think it's just like it's authenticity. I think people in the audience identify, you know, they didn't when Howard is talking about sex or whatever or his family or you know his childhood people just are, just identify with that and when those guys would talk about sports and obviously they're much less confessional than Howard as we all are um they were talking about you know they were people there was just so much identification going on people were like I I understand these people these people are like me I may not be I may not have as cool a job as them I may not be as crazy as they are but I think that identification and then on top of that, the fact that they had so many years where they really, really didn't like each other, <laughs> and it was real. It was like we watch debate shows now, right? This was not that. This was real angst. This was two guys that were whose career were looking out for their own careers, who didn't know if they could survive together, and and all that played out on the air. And that's, I mean, that it's so hard to replicate that. You couldn't just sit down and be like, "Oh, let's put these two talented people on the air." No, 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 because they're not going to have that dynamic, you know. And I don't know. I agree with you. I, mean, I think that's special, and I don't think it'll ever, ever be the same again in a, quite the same way.
2: Such a smart decision by them to be fans, to and and such a smart decision for Dog not to be afraid of the fact that he wasn't a Yankees fan. He was a Giants yes. fan and hated the Yankees. It was this perfect. Heel face relationship sometimes.
0: <laughs> yeah, and and also, yeah. you know, he was happy to play heel with the Giants too, right? Yeah, Francesa was so close to Parcells, and he like picked against them. I think in the second Parcells Super Bowl, and Frances was really pissed off. And I mean, that was that was great. He owned it. Well, yeah, dog
2: picked the Bills to beat them forty nine to thirteen or something like that. <laughs> and Francesa went and told Parcells. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So that's. That's hilarious to me. Like, Francesca Super Bowl week's getting on the phone to tell Priscilla's his radio partner picked against
0: him. It's, it's he,
1: oh,
2: massive. it's amazing. The self-importance. Also,
0: I love it. And that. Also, just, also, you know, people have been asking about the reunion, and I asked, I asked Mike about that, you know, and, and he said, one, he didn't think it was going to happen, at least in any kind of sustained way. You know, there will not be Mike and the Mad Dog again. Right. But even if they have, you know, they do one day a week together on Sirius or an hour a week together on Sirius, which they might, um they're just at different points in their lives you know they're older they're not as they're not as cranky well mike's still cranky but they're they're not they're not not as they're not as competitive with each other anymore and you know it will be great it will be a nice you know reunion reunion trip down nostalgia lane but it will never have that same crackling chemistry that it did in the glory years
2: i think Sirius really needs them they just fired opie everything that you know at the the remnants of the opening Anthony show, which was the biggest show on Se- second biggest show on Sirius for years, is now gone. Anthony's been gone for three years. Opie's now been gone for three days. Uh, Howard Stern is down to one year; is just about gone from the fi- the last five year deal. He says he's ever going to sign, even though it's a twelve year deal. With seven of those is basically for the tapes, not for him doing live shows. Uh, I think they 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 could really stand to use those guys. Give Francesa a channel, because he's never going to be on Dog's channel. <laughs> Give him a channel, and let them simulcast one day or one hour or whatever you can get them agreed to a week. I think they need it. The problem might be that they need it more than Mike and Chris do, like
0: you mentioned. You know, Yeah, definitely than Mike does, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, Chris... Chris seems like, and I see, I've you know talked to him, in fact, I went and visited him at Sirius when I was writing about Mike, and he, was, he seemed very engaged, didn't sound like he was going anywhere. But whether Mike wants to roll in and do a daily thing, you know, I don't know. Now, he did tell me, and he said to other people, too, that he wants to kind of incubate young talent. So if you gave him a radio station there and said, hey, you can pick all the guys that are the rest of the schedule. Interesting, right? Maybe you'd yeah. be interested in
2: that. And I mean Eddie Trunk has a five day you know, five day show there. He's barely ever there. He does most of eighty percent of the shows right from his house. You know, FAN was never gonna do that for him. Sirius can very easily set up a home studio for Mike and let Mike come and go as he pleases. If he wants to Absolutely. come in three times during the contract, they can they can let that fly, you know, and they would do that in a heartbeat. Um, And I wonder if that's something Mike's even thought about yet, the idea that he can sign on there, have a channel, like you said, pick the talent for the channel, and do as much or as little as he wants, and then have a little simulcast crossover with Dog just for the buzz of it, if nothing else. Yeah. That's almost the only way he's going to sign a seven-figure deal,
0: right? Right. I mean, is there any
2: other seven-figure deals out there for him?
0: That's the thing, right? I mean, so he—it's going to be a lot of money to do whatever he's going to do. He's going to take a lot of money, right? So it's either going to be now when he when he and I were talking, he was talking a lot about podcasting and stuff like that. And I don't know if people have come to him with huge sums of money and been, you know, kind of teased him and said, "Hey, you know, if you want to do this, here's a lot of money to do it," Uh, because he wouldn't settle. And then, you know, he then he could always still do an hour with Russo you know, from his house every week to kind of promote it or whatever, but, you know, I would, I think being kind of entrepreneurial probably appeals to him a little bit. He's a business guy, you know, and going off on his own and being like, I'm going to be independent and just try to raise a giant amount of money by doing, I mean, it's really weird to think of him in podcast form. Really, really weird. It's like O'Reilly, even though totally different people. I listened to the Bill O'Reilly podcast when he moved over there from Fox and it was like, this is just strange. You know, this is like I'm so used to seeing this guy in this one medium, and now he's over here. So is that having I
2: success? I, I have no idea. I, I mean, I've never.
0: I don't either. Yeah. I have no clue. But it's yeah. certainly not. Ha- it's certainly not. I mean, maybe there's a billion people that subscribe to it through his website, but I, you certainly don't hear about it. Yeah, I've heard and nothing. And I think about I think
2: <laughs> <laughs> I've heard nothing. And that's one
0: thing. Do- no, nothing. And I think that's one thing. Dog told me is like he's like Mike's gonna miss if Mike does a podcast that's not like live. He's going to like, there's going to be a huge sports Sunday. The Giants are going to have a big win. If something happens in the NFL or Tiger, heaven forbid, comes back and wins a major, something like that. And he's not going to have an outlet on Monday. It's just going to kill him. You know, it's really going to, he's going to be like, I need to get to a microphone and talk about this. And and that is the thing that could lure him back to the radio.
2: Let's hit a couple more quick ones and I'll let you go. I know you got dinner with your father-in-law. Uh, you mentioned how Chris Christie kind of did the audition uh, there and i laughed so hard that the headline became that he kind of offhandedly called some guy a communist which i did i didn't know was uh, such an insult but not a single soul had any problem with that guy calling him a fat ass and i just, i just want to make i just want to make the point that in 2017 the world of outrage that we live in i want to make the point that Nobody cares about the things that are said. It's who and when you say them to to people. Like, fat ass is totally cool if it's aimed at Chris Christie because he's a mean, fat Republican who sat on a beach that was closed when 119 of 121 miles of Jersey Shoreline beaches were open. Uh, but he sat on the two miles that were closed. So he's a dick. That's totally cool. But imagine, imagine... If a female, I don't even care what her Republican Democrat, I don't think it would matter. Imagine if a female sat in there and someone called her a fat ass.
0: I uh, when when the Christie pictures came out and Twitter was just endless fat jokes. Endless. I was like, I was like, oh, these are okay. This is okay, just to go.
2: Everyone's cool just with it.
0: Go in on this. Yep. I mean, I think. I mean, Chris for Christie, there may be a higher. Or Bart, um, just because for outrage, just because he is so pugnacious, you know. But yeah, I mean, point point taken. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly, that was the, that was that was where the outrage. Yeah, that was. Um, I think you know with him, I just can't imagine that he's gonna want to do that, or even gonna want to do a very long, long. I mean, I think it's, it's kind of this like the. Peter of the Absurd this week for the first couple. But, like, if you really want to know about the Yankees and Giants and all that stuff, are you really going to not listen to that instead of Michael K, who actually knows about the Yankees? You really, no, and you Michael know? K
2: has really cut into Francesca's lead the last six months. I think that a lot he of. He won June. Yeah, I think a lot of. He won of that, the June ratings. Yeah, I think a lot of that has to do with. I think Mike's phoning it in a little bit, and I think people realize <laughs> that. Uh, but. Yeah, no, that doesn't make any sense to me. I can't see him doing that. But um, I just from a, from from the out, from the false outrage department. I just I couldn't believe that all the fat shaming that went on and how perfectly okay people were with it. Um, let's see. I thought I had one more thing. Uh, sports media wise. Oh, it's such a slow summer, huh? I mean, there is. It is totally slow. There is nothing. No Olympics. No World Cup. No. There's nothing to even pretend to be like we pretend to be excited about an event every every other summer just because there's nothing there isn't even anything to pretend about. I mean, there's just nothing happening.
0: (laughs) You know, it's like that, and I don't catch you because you're nice enough to have me on all the time. But I know it's slow because in the last like week and a half, I've got like 19 sports radio invitations, and I'm like, really? Like all these people have me on, but I think it's just like we're in this. We're all like, we need some content, right? Where's Curtis? What can we we talk about? What can we talk about? I mean, and you know, part of this is the baseball thing, right? Like the home run derby was awesome. C- got everybody's attention for a yeah. night. It was awesome. Yeah. The All-Star, the all-star game, less so. But there continues, and I've been an opponent of the baseball is dying, baseball is dying kind of thing. But, man, there just sure seems to be no real interest in, like, national conversation about baseball. There's a lot of interest in your team conversation for sure. Uh, Yankees rain Re- you know whatever team you're like in whatever market you're in, but like just trying to like write national baseball stuff and talk about baseball in kind of a national way here's what the league is like man, that sure seems to be on the downturn. I just there's just none of it.
2: I know what the last thing I wanted to ask you about there's been some rumors floating around that there's some kind of bar stool sports show being pitched. I can't remember what the network is, uh, but someone's getting close to maybe putting a bar stool show on uh, and obviously the debate there is do people who listen and care about barstool want to watch them on tv uh i actually my brother who's 11 years younger than me loves pardon the take or whatever the hell it's called pardon my ticket right he tells me how great it is and drew me in to listen when stoops was on he's like oh it's a great interview you gotta hear it bob stoops is on then they start talking to him for fifteen minutes about his visor, and I want to throw up that these guys <laughs> it's like these guys have this kind of access to Bob Stoops and they want to talk about his visor for fifteen minutes. It makes me want to gag. I know I'm not the target audience the target audience is something totally different, but my question to you is do you think people will follow them uh, to television and like do you think do you think barstool matters beyond being what it is now a blog with <laughs> a successful podcast wing
0: so so i think it's tough right because their audience is not people that don't watch television right i mean that's what's hard you're like you're trying to you're saying we have this great podcast business or successful podcast business we have a successful web business like now we're trying to with social media it's all over the place now we're trying to get people to do something they don't do and i think that's really weird i watched their one of their specials on Super Bowl week, which is on Comedy Central.
2: Yeah. I watched it too.
0: I, so I just thought from a production standpoint, and again, I'm not, I am not a stoolie by any, by any stretch. Right. Um, but I thought from a production standpoint, like having all their fans behind them, holding signs and yelling and those dudes on beach chairs, I thought like, that's like, they, they translated that to television about as well as you possibly can, you know? And that was like, I thought that was like, I was like, Oh, this is this is like this is pretty pleasant to watch you know this is like they kind of figured this out and i don't know i didn't watch the rest of the week so i don't know if it went anywhere from there but you know i think they um i just i just wonder it's like who's who's gonna watch that when you can just listen to pardon my take if you want to hear those guys that's or or the rundown or whatever like you want it you just going to consume them that way i don't know if you do we need to see them on television does that at this point in media history do we even care Maybe not.
2: Not only do that, I think their fans might not watch TV. They might not even have TV.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's scary. If you're them, <laughs> if, if you're a net, I mean, not if not if you're them, and they'll take. I mean, they'll do it. I'm sure. But it's like if you're a network and you're like, should we double down on these guys? You know, and I think there's also just the whole thing of like, you know, can you? What are those guys going to say on TV? Can those guys do what they want to, like content-wise on TV? Right? You go back to Howard Stern or something like that. You know, can you be yourself uh, within the confines? I don't know.
2: Yeah, I find it. I find it hard to hard to believe it would work in the long term. But like you said, they'll take the money and they'll give it a try. I'm sure. And if it doesn't work, why not? And if it doesn't work, they're the perfect guys to just self-deprecate and hate on it after the fact. Like I can't see it hurt, hurting <laughs> them, you know. Like, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. So uh, it's like
0: it's like great co- it's great content either way.
2: the dot of course, is the website where you can find Brian's work, and I'm still waiting for the Cowboys fan piece that we talked about. Oh, that's like, right, we're like in year ago. four. Yeah, so it's time to get that up. Uh, you can find Brian on Twitter. He's at Brian Curtis. So where does Brian Curtis and his father-in-law go for dinner? Where Where are you gonna go?
0: Um, I'm going to push for Thai food tonight. Thai food. Here in, uh, here in lovely Huntington beach, California. Cool. Um, we, we had Mexican early in the week. It's just the two of us here. So we're kind of, you know, we're just bacheloring it up. Oh, are the wives, people,
2: the wives are out on vacation or something.
0: Everybody. Yeah. The family's elsewhere. So, oh, okay. So it just, um, company. yeah. So this is, this is, uh, this is this is gonna be fun. I mean we're gonna we're gonna have a wild night of maybe one beer. Who each. will pay? Uh you know, it dueling credit cards last time. Just cut it down the middle. We didn't even it wasn't even a fight. You're just like, oh it's just just have you. so it's really? great. I mean, I think either one of us would happily pick it up, but it's just I don't know why that just made sense. You know, you don't want to fight over it. That's interesting.
2: That's interesting. Yeah, you know I'm what? Get I'm, an argument. I'm a big the patriarch should pay guy because I'm hardly ever the <laughs> patriarch. You know, you know, like I have very, I have not reached the point where I'm, I'm, rarely the patriarch. So I'm always like, you know, I think the oldest man should pay for this meal.
0: Uh, Ooh, yeah, but it's know? and you're right. It's nice when we, the younger man, normally are get our, get to pick our spots, right? Right. Like ah, I got I got this. Right, everybody, back off. I always
2: ref- I always refer to the scene in Sopranos where Meadow and her boyfriend and uh, AJ. And Tony go out to dinner, it's when they're separated, and the boyfriend tries to pay, and Tony loses his shit and he po- he, he, <laughs> he calmly he calmly takes the guy outside and says,
0: "You eat, I pay and that would so. I'm, I'm I'm desperately hoping to avoid that kind of scenario'll we'll, we we'll see That' would
2: be interesting if the father-in-law does take you out and put you against a corner scold you for paying that would be, that'd be something. All right, Brian. Thanks for all the time. We'll talk soon, I'm sure.
0: Thank you, as always. Absolutely.
2: All right, buddy. Ah, it feels good to be back. I want to thank Brian Curtis and Tom Verducci for being on the first podcast in a while. I want to thank everyone for hanging in there with me. Don't forget, you can find this podcast and all of our episodes at www.soundcloud.com slash sports dash casters. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Downcast, Podbean, wherever podcasts can be found. And if for some reason you're looking but can't find the Sportscasters, email us, Sportscasters at gmail.com. Also, email us if you want to put a vote in for which of the seven finalists you think should win Sportscasters Book Club Book of the Year. You can do that, or you can reach out on Twitter. I'm at sports underscore casters and Don is at Don like sports and you can even find Paula there as well at Paula Bennett 23 uh, don't forget motivation through music a podcast I'm producing second Mike is well on there at Matthew Sabalski on Twitter and Instagram for more information motivation through music is also on SoundCloud and can be found On Apple Podcasts and Stitcher as well. Sometime hopefully this weekend. Or early next week. A bonus edition of the Sportscasters. Where my friend and Eric and I. Kibitz about SummerSlam. 1988. Alright one last thing for me today. And that's just that I'm glad to be back. Uh, It has been. It's been a long first year adjusting to being a dad and doing this podcast. You know, it's been hard to figure out where everything really in my life fits in. You know, where does my disease fit into being a dad? Uh, where does my sleep fit in? Where does my podcast fit in? Where do my friends fit in? Uh, I've had to adjust. And uh, figure out where everything goes because one thing I knew for sure is it all went somewhere behind uh, the actual being a dad part that Paula was going to have to be number one uh, above my disease and above my podcast and above my friends and my brothers everything it had to be number one and it's a tough adjustment but uh, you know I feel like over a year in we've made it we had a fantastic first birthday party for her uh, my wife did an amazing job putting it together uh, all the kids that were there had fun paula had fun um and i think a year in i kind of got everything figured out and I, i'm really excited about the projects i mentioned uh i look forward to producing motivation through music every week uh I'm having fun booking guests for the sportscasters. Booking is definitely the hardest part, uh, but when you're into it and you're kind of humming on all cylinders with booking, I when I am anyway, I can kill it. And I kind of feel like I'm in a good place with that. And also, I'm looking forward to the bonus podcasts. Like I said, it's something I've always wanted to do, review old WWF pay-per-views, the pay-per-views of my youth, Uh, and I'm also really looking forward to this documentary that I'm working on, hopefully to be released on April 13th, 2018. So it's a good time uh, for the few of you that are fans of mine uh, to be said fan. Uh, Because we got a lot of really cool things coming up.